You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is January 12, 2023. It's 7.38 p.m. Pacific time. and um, before the the recording started, we were talking about uh, self-generated emotion and regulating emotion and cognitive function. But um, I wanted to talk about something else tonight, so I think I'm going to change the topic. Uh, Mary Main died. I don't know if you know who Mary Main is. She died uh, on the sixth, so a few days ago. Um, and because this is a, an attachment-focused group, uh, I wanted to honor her by talking about her a little bit. She was uh, one of the seminal feet, uh, seminal minds in the development of uh, attachment theory, and her discovery of disorganized attachment was, and uh, I think will be one of the the most uh, significant contributions to uh, psychology as we know it, and also incredibly helpful to people in terms of understanding why it is that uh, their lives are are difficult in a way that really nothing else had uh, before that managed. So, so here, I'm creating a fairly high bar and talking about uh, what she was able to do. Uh, And she did this uh, uh, first with Mary Ainsworth, who, uh, as you may recall, in the attachment world was associated with John Bowlby, the the originator of the theory. And and she, uh, uh, Mary Main's husband, Eric Hesse, who was uh, involved in all of this. Um, They worked out of UC at Berkeley. The other thing that she did, which was so significant, was she uh, um, was part of the the group that developed the adult attachment interview, which is the assessment tool uh, that determine, that allows us to determine what your attachment conditioning is. Um, I think it's very exciting that we live in a time where these kinds of discoveries are being made because uh, when you couple that with the the efforts of Dan Brown and his group to develop uh, strategies that actually can repair attachment, the, the discovery of what it is that's wrong and also the discovery of what you can do uh, to repair it is uh, remarkable. <clears throat> it, uh, my grandmother, uh, who died at 95 in I would guess in maybe uh, 89 or 90, something like that, used to say uh, when we were growing up that <clears throat> You need to pick somebody who comes from a good family. 
because it doesn't matter how much you love a person. If they don't come from a good family, they really won't be able to support you in the relationship. They really won't be able to support a family. And I think that that was the wisdom of understanding that there are certain things that happen to people in their early lives that there there is no way to undo until this period. So it's going to be interesting to see. I was talking to Mary about this, I, I don't know <clears throat> how long ago. Uh, maybe eight years ago or something. And she said that <clears throat> because there was no reliable way to repair uh, adverse attachment conditioning that she preferred to think about it in terms of what we could develop and offer uh, parents so that they could parent their children in a way that the children would be secure. And uh, I do think that that's a, a wonderful approach if we could intervene in such a way that children, all children really developed in a secure way the way that they, they would be able to function as adults would be quite different than what we see in the world now. That takes a lot of resources. We, we don't obviously live in a, in a society where that seems to be a priority. Um, and I, but I think also that she was making that uh, expression because there wasn't something that uh, could reliably affect uh, attachment conditioning and move it toward earned security. But these are marvelous uh, contributions, and it's it's interesting um, to uh, really understand that in our very complex society, with the values the way that they are, there are people doing this uh, fundamental work that actually is going to be so useful to all of us. <clears throat> John Bowlby uh, came of age uh, between the, the First and Second World War, uh, the war to end all wars, and the next war after the war to end all wars. <laughs> The, uh, the psychoanalytic community had moved from uh, being centered in Vienna to being centered in London because there was uh, uh, <clears throat> so much uh, pressure on the Jewish communities in that period between wars. And so they fled. And so he grew up in that environment where <clears throat> The, the idea that what actually happened to you caused these things was, was secondary to actually your interpretation of them. <clears throat> Partly this is because Freud uh, backed down about that, his uh, famous uh, 1894 paper, um, because he was getting so much pressure from, from um, saying that adverse childhood experiences caused 
psychological problems, um, the uh, parent group did not want to hear that. And so they pressured him into withdrawing that idea. One of the things that uh, Bowlby uh, thought was that actually it was those conditions that caused the, the difficulties in, in uh, adult lives, adverse childhood conditions. And his, he was interested in uh, examining that. Uh, during the Second World War, when the, uh, Germany bombed uh, London Uh, uh, with the idea that they would uh, break the morale of the of the British people so that they would surrender uh, by um, bombing civilian targets. The government responded by removing children from the, the east end of London and putting them into foster care in the countryside. That was a common practice at the time um, particularly in poor families, children were removed and placed in public or orphanages ordinarily uh, when a new baby came into the household so that the the mother could bond with uh, the new baby. And then after six weeks, the, the other children in the home were brought back into the home. And, um, after the Second World War, Bowlby was tasked by the British government to evaluate whether the children being separated from their uh, caregivers and placed in foster care in the countryside would cause harm to the children that then the government would have to be uh, would have to provide services for it. Uh, in the end uh, in, in evaluating that discovered that uh, yes it's likely that there's lifelong harm caused by that separation and, and then uh, the practice of separating children ordinarily from their uh, families uh, with the uh, entry of a new infant in the families was ended because it was part of this <clears throat> recognition. Bowlby wanted, because he was a psychiatrist, to uh, have empirical data about the nature of these things and also to understand what was happening. And so he hired a researcher he put an ad in the paper. Mary Ainsworth was an American. Her husband was a diplomat, and she was in London, and she answered the ad. And uh, in collaboration with Bowlby, created the strange situation. The strange situation is a way of evaluating ch children to see what their attachment uh, response is. And uh, as young as 10 months old, they're taken into the this uh, strange situation for evaluation, which is a room with some chairs, a small room filled with toys, and they watch the interaction of uh, child and parent at eight points, and this uh, stranger enters, a stranger leaves, the caregiver uh, leaves the child, and they watch how the child reacts. And uh, Balby began to recognize these three patterns, a, securely, uh, a secure pattern, a, an anxious avoidant pattern, and an anxious ambivalent pattern. Um, but he wanted to understand uh, the nature of that. And so uh, um, Ainsworth and her, her team of uh, researchers went into the homes of the people that he investigated and began to watch the patterns of that. 
and uh, uh, so documented the different kinds of behaviors that parents do with their children that then produces these uh, outcomes. And then her, her husband moved and she repeated that in Africa and then she returned to the US continuing her collaboration with Bowlby at a distance, ended up at John Hopkins. Um, it's a, sometimes it's hard to imagine where we are now in terms of the progress that we made, what that must have been like for a woman to attempt to go into uh, a research university uh, that was so male dominated and uh, um, uh, seek a place of equal standing in that environment. Uh, Mary Main uh, said, um, uh, imagine this, uh, Mary Ainsworth is on the faculty of John Hopkins, but the uh, faculty club does not allow women in the building. Um, so Ainsworth's approach to this was to get dressed up looking pretty nice, walk past the maitre d' and sit herself down at a table in the, the, the faculty club. And the faculty club's response to this was simply to ignore her that that had happened. So she went on a Monday and they ignored her. She stayed for the whole lunch and then she got up and left. And then she came on Tuesday. They ignored her. And they ignored her on Wednesday and Thursday. And on Friday, as the waiter was walking by, she asked him for a glass of water and he brought her a glass of water. And so the precedent of a woman being served in the faculty club was broken by that gesture. So uh, politeness wins out uh, in the end. But then you have Mary Main, who is looking for a doctorate, a PhD program in linguistics, applying to different uh, academic programs and being turned down all across the country in that particular field, one year and then another. <clears throat> and her advisor saying, listen, what you need to do is apply to women who have uh, the ability to bring in PhD students, because that's the only way that you're going to get in. And it doesn't matter what the curriculum is. Once you get in, you'll have more maneuverability. Uh, uh, Mary Main wanted uh, to study linguistics, but she applied around. And the only person that that was interested in her was Mary Ainsworth. So she went and she joined the program. They did the strange situation and the analysis of the strange situation. So this is a, a film or a videotape of the, uh, the um, interactions between parent and child and a researcher. Um, there was a, um, a clear presentation of a secure child, a clear presentation of an anxious avoidant child, a clear presentation 
of an anxious, ambivalent child. A secure child uh, seeks proximity to their caregiver. They look to their caregiver for uh, assurance that the environment is safe. And once they have the assurance that the environment is safe, they begin to explore. If they feel threatened, they retreat and seek protection from the caregiver there. They settle pretty easily. An avoidant child doesn't seek proximity to, uh, to the caregiver. They seem to operate independently without that need for attention or reassurance. And an anxious, ambivalent uh, child is clingy and finds it very hard to settle, very hard to explore, and those patterns were quite clear. There was a group of kids, though, that they couldn't pattern, didn't fit into either one of those, and they set those uh, aside. One of the things that they were interested in understanding is, did the attachment strategy of the caregiver influence the attachment strategy of the child. And so uh, Mary Main uh, and uh, her group began to devise uh, different ways of trying to test the attachment strategy of the caregiver that would be predictive of what the attachment strategy of the child became. Does that make sense? So they're evaluating in uh, the uh, exploring the attachment strategy of the caregiver um, to see if it had a predictive nature to the attachment strategy of the child. And they so they devised the the adult attachment interview. I think Mary said that one of her graduate students did most of it. And then they began to uh, test it. And what they found was that the AI is 85% predictive of what your child's attachment strategy was. And they began to research it in different ways. Um, in fact, the attachment strategy is handed down uh, generation to generation. Um, you have a 70% chance, for instance, of having the same attachment strategy as your great-grandmother. So that's four generations of transmission of the same attachment strategy. So we really do learn from our caregivers in the way that they relate to us uh, the nature of attachment. At some point, they decided that they would look at the, the attachment, uh, the strange situation interviews that did not fall into those three categories. And that's through that investigation uh, discovered the uh, disorganized category, which is, I think, um, one of these uh, phenomenal breakthroughs. Probably don't know it at the moment, but it it turns into that. So, <clears throat> for the work that we do here at Better Group, uh, so much of uh, her contribution and things that we use. Uh, with the students here to evaluate and, and uh, help re repair attachment. And so I just wanted to mark that marker passing. Such a, a lovely person who really had this eye out for helping all of us, which is, I think, remarkable. It's also interesting uh, when you think about this through the Buddhist lens about the nature of karma. 
Um, her interest in linguistics was actually the thing that cracked the code. But in the beginning, it looked like she was going to have to abandon her interest in linguistics and and uh, and go with uh, the limitations that uh, the national and local cultures imposed. Dan used to say that uh, if you live an ethical life, the things that happen can be viewed as good karma. But often what happens is they're not what you want. And we have a tendency to, to orient our understanding around the nature of karma as in terms of getting what we want or not getting what we want. And that the, the interesting uh, aspect of exploring the experience that you're having is that if you live this ethical life, the things that happen uh, are the good karma. And how then do you begin to understand that? So that you're not rejecting what's happening, you're really pulling in what's happening and being present for what's happening. I think that, that her story is a marvelous illustration of that. Christian? Was, was Mary Main tracking or corresponding with Dan Brown through like the three pillars development? Well, um, I my recollection of talking to the two of them is that they had not met more than uh, uh, for a cursory introduction at a conference and that um, Mary Main was on the research side and she actually asked people not to use the research on the clinical side uh, until they were actually sure about it. Uh, and so they uh, did not correspond in that way. <clears throat> the research side and the clinical side are quite different terms of the, the the motivation for things. The research side is just looking at what it is and what's happening. And the clinical side is looking for things that might be effective in, in changing it and creating a, a particular outcome. So you move through a lot of iterations of what might or might not work. I think that Dan said that he that his group had spent 20 years developing the method that they they did that eventually worked. Carol? Yeah, um, I noted that uh, uh, Mary Ainsworth died about 1999. Did Mary Maines uh, stay active all these 22 years since? Mary Main and Mary Ainsworth were great, great friends and stayed in, in contact the whole time, as I understand. Uh-huh. But I was wondering about, was she active in the last 20 years since Ainsworth died in 1999? Mary Main, you mean? Yes. Yeah, she's been working at Berkeley, uh, continuing the research since then. Wow. The whole time. Jake? At any point in her life, did she decide that okay, this is enough 
solid research and then we can, you know, it can be applied to clinical practice. Was she ever involved in that or was she just purely doing research until the end of her life? She just did the research. It wasn't her um, area. She was fascinated by it, though. We, we did talk about it quite a bit. Um, can you add something since you gave us all her story? Can you tell us about your story with her? Well, um, really, it was uh, I met her doing the Adult Attachment in uh, Institute which I did a couple of times. And then I uh, saw her at uh, um, a conference. So um, during, the in, during the Institute, uh, you have lunch. And I had quite a few lunches um, with her uh, in the faculty <laughs> club at Berkeley. So, uh, and asking these kinds of questions, have you not thought of doing clinical practice? No, it's not my, my thing. I'm just interested in the research and actually uh, um, thinking that the resources would be better spent on developing uh, interventions for families while children are young so that they can develop secure attachment, which I think is happening. If you could go in to a, a family and teach the caregivers just around the attachment question, what they need to do, uh, it is um, easier than, say, uh, undoing <laughs> a lifetime of poor attachment conditioning. I quite liked her, and I quite liked Eric, her husband, and, and their. Uh, primary research uh, colleague, uh, Naomi is her name. Were you able to share with uh, Mary the uh, kind of work that you've been doing, this synthesis of uh, meditation and uh, attachment theory? Yes, I, I, I was, and we talked about it quite a bit. She was, she... Um, marveled at it in a sense, uh, and was delighted that there was something that that could be done. When, um, but also to understand the nature of her mind and the openness of it and support, uh, she allowed me to go to the institute twice as a meditation teacher, not as a psychology professional. Um, I wrote. I I knew that it was going to be hard to get into the institute initially, and so I spent a few days writing uh, what I thought was a great uh, cover letter, which I sent and got no reply. So then I rewrote the letter and sent it to uh, a, a different group that was also offering the the training, and they wrote me back and said that. They would be happy to accept me to the institute, but why wouldn't I just go to the institute in California uh, instead of traveling uh, halfway across the country? And I said uh, because they wouldn't let me in, and they said, "Tell you what, we'll forward your your letter to them and say that we've talked to you and we think that you're sincere." And and so, uh, and I heard back from them that they would 
um, be willing to let me in. <laughs> now, some of you may remember, but I had this full beard down to my belly and this long hair when I went up there. <clears throat> and so I, I was quite different than in the first institute, one half of the room were basically psychiatrists, and the other half of the room were basically career civil servants working in public mental health. Um, one of the things about the assessment is that it's very uh, time and skill intensive. You have to train to be able to do it. Uh, and so uh, it, it isn't. Uh, at least in our culture, the way that we operate now, something that is going to be available because it, it, it's too it's too hard for our uh, culture. Um, and then um, the the level of skill that you have to develop in order to be able to do it. Uh, give the interview and score it yourself is really high. It's a high bar. And so that's a kind of training that is in a couple of weekends. And it's also way more effective. And then in the second institute, it, it was more uh, oriented toward uh, psychology people in, in, in practice, private practice, who were thinking that this would be a good thing. But I think that that's also the the time we're in. It takes a long time for these ideas to permeate uh, into culture, really 30 to 40 years for a discovery uh, that actually tests well and holds up to become uh, widely understood in a culture. And then the process of trying to create uh, some way of utilizing it in, in, in the culture it takes longer than that. So the, we're, we're just really at the beginning of this uh, process of understanding uh, the effects of a, uh, attachment conditioning and, and then how to unwind it. So it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. I know that from uh, our approach, which is a meditation approach, uh, not a psychotherapy approach who used the ideal parent figure to remap that, but that was always a meditation uh, approach from uh, the Tibetan Ban uh, practice of Mahamudra. Um, we don't do the mentalization-based training in a in a therapeutic psychotherapeutic frame. We do it as a meditation practice using a metavipassana structure. And then we don't do the, the psychoeducation using the a therapeutic bond between therapist and uh, client. We do it in a class structure. So we, we do a psychoeducation that's a group, a group setting for uh, where we offer the information. It took a while uh, to convince Dan Brown that this was going to be a usable approach, but when, when he we worked on a study together. When he saw the outcomes of the study, he recognized that it was a useful approach, which was gratifying.
So she was 80 when she died, which is a good long life, well spent. And I'm so appreciative of, of, of that uh, effort and uh, the serendipity of, of uh, karma. <laughs> It is, you know, the thing actually that I really liked about her is that she was game. Do you, do you know what I mean by that? She was up for it. She was up for, for life. She was up for what was happening. Um, well, let's do a little practice. What do you think? Um, I, I had a, a one quick question. I mean, to me, George, your, you know, your synthesis of these techniques, uh, is cutting edge and, you know, obviously very effective and people have been noticing that, um, are there other people who have figured this out? in the similar way? Well, I don't know that there's another meditation group that does it uh, the way that we do. Um, there, There is Dan's group that does the, the uh, three-pillar approach as a psychotherapy-based thing. And there are different uh, groups that do different aspects of it that it isn't all together. For instance, the Anthony Bateman, Peter Fonagy group uh, out of Tavistock in London, part of the Anna Freud Center, has MBT, uh, which uh, works um, in terms of uh, reducing the the uh, symptoms of different kinds of personality disorders. But I don't know that that uh, it it earns people's security uh, using the AAI as the metric for that. Um, beyond the dance group, I don't know of another group uh, that does. But I I I I think that that's because where we are in terms of the timeline of this entering into our culture. I I don't know that that uh, while these approaches work and they're effective. Uh, and uh, um, that other approaches won't uh, come along. I don't know um, what will happen, really. I do wish that we would, as a society, begin to address these conditions. Um, one of the things that's, I don't know if you're aware of this, but addiction is, an, we think of addiction as an attachment disturbance. And uh, certainly the, the, the legal approach to addressing this is of no value and it's very expensive. Um, you know, what other, what other program that was a complete failure would you fund year after year after year? If it wasn't making everybody so much money, uh, who's providing the services that don't work? Are you talking about 12 steps? 
12 steps, no, I'm talking more about uh, the criminal justice system and uh, Ill the making the, the uh, drugs illegal, all of that, all of those consequences. I mean, there's, uh, <clears throat> there's law enforcement, there's the prison system, there's the judicial system, there's the medical system. The 12-step world uh, is um, really useful, but it also is not hugely effective. But one of the things that's happened uh, with with the illegality of all of this is that it's pushed the manufacturers of illicit drugs into producing substances which are fundamentally harming. So the the P2P meth, uh, the fentanyl, and now they call it, uh, I think, TARP, but it's a it's a tranquilizer for uh, livestock, which is now being mixed in with fentanyl and uh, and uh, anyway, it it causes. Uh, uh, terrible damage to the body so that we have su super addictive drugs that cause permanent harm to the people that use them and uh, and because of the this legal wedge that we use to push them into the a place where they have no options uh, it's just a catastrophe that is unfolding now. Anyway, I'll stop. I'm, it's 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 it upsets me that we can't just recognize that these are people that need treatment, not incarceration, and uh, that if we can begin to look at this as through the uh, attachment lens, we might be able to. Um, help. Christian? George, in, in terms of uh, other modalities, hopefully I'm not misremembering, but I believe transference-focused psychotherapy has had some good outcomes in terms of shifting attachment, but I think it's a pretty long-term, I think it's a pretty long-term approach. Right. Well, they did have some studies that showed that 10 years of psychotherapy with, with the same psychotherapist, if there was a good therapeutic relationship, could shift attachment. <laughs> In our society, uh, considering that 70% of the population could use some attachment work, what do you think the likelihood is that we're going to provide 10 years of psychotherapy to everybody? <laughs> I would put the chances at zero. Uh, so, Cindy? Um, what about the use of ayahuasca and some of the other so-called more natural um, mind-altering substances, you know, that are used in the shaman, shamanistic world? Have those proven to be helpful in any arena that you're involved in? I don't know. Um, I think that in that for people that have a very rigid sense of self and very hard reality, that they're very useful in 
in prying that open. Um, but I don't know. Um, I, my, you know, the it's certainly very uh, popular now. Yeah. So I don't know the the. Partly we have to wait and see what the long-term effect is, and partly we, we have to study it in a way that we can actually get some information about it. I don't know. Um, uh, you know, long-term meditator thinks that meditation is um, will pro provi provide all of the insights that you can get from psychedelics uh, and that it's more stable. Um, Uh, if you could take a, a pill and be instantly enlightened, would you take it? That's the, the question. Well, sometimes it's a portal or a window to what's, yeah. what's possible, what our capacity may hold. And yeah. I, do, I do find reports, I haven't had it myself, but reports of people who've experienced that, that have gone on the path of meditation because they had an enlightening experience yeah yeah that that would be a i think a super useful outcome yeah yeah i think so too um all right loving kindness how's that was good good I have to admit, Jennifer, that while I was sitting, images of the cake that you brought over kept floating in my mind. <laughs> well, it's kind of nice that the, the cake was that memorable. <laughs> um, anything else you wanted to say? I, I felt like there was um that the concentration was building and then it would fade and then it would come back and then it would fade and it felt like it was kind of building nice um and my body got really hot and then it, and then there were sensations of kind of shiver sh sh you know the what's that word um kind of shivery feelings uh -huh. Um, yeah, so that's what happened. Good. I can share. Uh-huh. Yeah, I seem to be, uh, and you can, of course, give me some suggestions on this, but I seem to be resonating with um, imagining a person who I feel loving kindness with and by the way there's been a couple incidences where i felt it during the week and i'm like oh that must be it so it just, <laughs> it just yeah it just generates a warm feeling in my heart energy and just so i was able to access that with two different people during the practice and um i wondered what to do with it after that, I, of course, I get distracted and I go off on narratives. So then right. I coming back 
and and saying, oh yeah, remember? And one of them was, you know, Rick Hansen, the neurodharma guy. So he gave a talk last night and and his look of loving kindness when he just sits there, he's so kind of quirky, but there's something about his look that is just so endearing. Uh-huh. And makes my heart open. And since it was last night, I had that feeling at the end of his talk as he just stares into the camera with all this juicy loving kindness. So I was able to access that. And then I wondered, um, what do you mean by the right view? Like, am I am I on the right track to just sort of feel it uh, oh. and going back to it? Yeah. When you notice the, how does conceptual reality look to you? Does it look differently? Conceptual reality versus what? So when can, when you have the mindset of loving kindness, how does uh, everything appear? And when you don't have the mindset of loving kindness, how does it appear? And can you see the difference in the way that self and world appear? Well, I have to, you know, figure out what you mean by conceptual because for me it's just a feeling energy and maybe a little bit of visualization yeah right so the ultimate reality experience is the pure sensing and then we make it into solid self solid world but when we make it into solid self solid world the the mindset or view that we're holding affects the way things appear and so what we're trying to track is the differences in the way things appear to us depending on what mind state we're holding or whether the mind is equanimous in the moment. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I would also say you're making progress in this because you're able to identify the state in the body. Now we just need you to- a feeling tone in response to pulling up, I don't know if you call it this conceptual thought of this person who I had the feeling with last night, yeah. Right, so now the idea is to explain to explore how does self and world appear to you when you're in that state? It feels great. It's light and buoyant and beautiful and all that. And then then when you're not in that state, how does the world look? Kind of mixed, kind of like whatever comes along and rolls, you know, rocks my boat the wrong way or the right way or whatever. So then you're beginning to understand the differences in view. One view is is a sort of neutral maybe the other view has this liveliness to it right so good progress yes (laughs) thank you perfection is too hard so we're not going for that (laughs) (laughs) hit the target yeah Someone else? Yeah. Um, when you ask that question of how does the uh, conceptual reality of self and world seem when you're in in that state, uh, mind state, um, and just what, uh, you know, hadn't thought about it, you know, but as you asked the question, what came up for me is that um, I just, there was a, a real lack of uh, opposition or there was very no tension or no right. opposing forces it just was very as is or relaxed with a deep acceptance of that 
good yeah open i would call that open okay wonderful yeah. yeah so but it's like oh i don't feel like anything's opposing me yeah. <laughs> that's nice <laughs> indeed good thanks stacy George um so I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this but I'm going to anyway um I I I don't really have an easy person I think I must have like only complicated relationships and like I sometimes can find like my friend's baby or right but what about could I could I use like like the moonrise or could I well, could I not use a person so are you able to identify loving kindness? Yeah. So if you don't have an easy person, what that means is you're going to have to use somebody who's not easy, but that you do hold the mindset of loving kindness for. And you just have to push all of the other mind states that you have associated with that person out of the way and focus on the loving kindness aspect. Okay. Okay. The reason we That's say easy, the reason Sayadaw was teaching easy, and if you had somebody where that was the only mindset associated, then when you thought of them, that mindset would just come up because that's the only one you have. But not everybody has an easy person. And, uh, it, you know, uh, it's really just about uh, learning to identify the mind state, then moving on to. Uh, being able to zoom in on that mindset in, in association with the more complex pattern of people that you know better. Okay. Yep. I can do that. Thanks so much. Good. And then hopefully that becomes easy for everybody and then everybody becomes an easy person. Someone else? It's is the aim to drop the phrase, may I be peaceful or may you be peaceful and drop that completely and just go into the feeling or view or? Um, well, there's a few reasons for the phrase. Mainly it's to fill up auditory thinking so auditory thoughts don't distract you. Uh, but also if you do get into a high concentration state, for instance, the first uh, metajana is, it's unstable and you pop out but it's easy to be disoriented and not really know what you're doing when you pop out of that that level of concentration then you hear the phrase and it, it reminds you what you're doing so you can come back faster uh, it's quite easy to get altered when you get into high concentration states and then you'll, you'll pop out and it'll, it'll just be sort of blissful and so you just hang out in the blissful state um, and then you come back you you use the phrase again when you pop out or what? Well, you pop out and you're a little disoriented, a little blissful, and then you hear the phrase and you think, oh yeah, I'm doing meta. I'll come back and reset. Because if you don't have the phrase and you pop out, you could literally sit there for 20 minutes, uh, space out. I see. That's helpful. It doesn't happen. So these periods are pretty short. But when when uh, we used to do this at, against the stream, we would sit for 50 minutes or an hour, and it was very ordinary for people to get quite blitzed out by it. 
and then for 20 minutes afterwards everybody's sort of bumping into each other because they're they're altered <laughs> all right um thank you for uh being here and listening to me uh rattle on about uh, mary main who i just adored and feel quite sad about. Um, we are doing a, a level one on Saturdays. So uh, last week was the first one. There's three more of those. It's from nine until one fifteen. I'm co-teaching with Stas uh, Um We're going to be talking about uh, emotional regulation and then uh, describing Secure attachment, I think. And then that's on Saturday. Uh, we have a level two class starting in February. Take a look at that if you're interested in that. Um, what else? We still have the retreat uh, set up in Utrecht in June. Um, uh, so anyway, it's all on the website. I offer the this class. Uh, uh, freely, but I do hope that you'll consider making a donation. There's a link on the website to do that. The donation helps support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. Really appreciate your practice. I hope to see you soon and uh, have a good night. Bye. Thank you, George. Thank you, George. Good night. Good night. Happy New Year, George. Thanks. Bye.